Uh, Father in heaven, you are uh, very, very great. And we confess we're not, and we uh, long to hear your word, and we pray that you would speak to us and give us clarity uh, in this passage this morning. And give us humility before it, and help us to rejoice uh, more today than we ever have in the Lord Jesus. We pray it for his glory. In your name, amen. amen. I wonder if you ever read the newspapers. I confess that uh, I don't. I don't count the Metro, if that's your thing. I, 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 I'm talking about real newspapers with actual news in. Uh, I find it too difficult to read the newspapers. And yet the articles still seem to find me out. People post uh, articles on social media and you get sucked into reading them. And, and it's true, the world is pretty horrible. And you read about the latest atrocities by Islamic State in Syria and you think... There is a darkness over that land. And there is. And you ask the question, how can people do that to each other? And more to the point, why doesn't God do something about it? Of course, we can switch off the news, can't we? We can turn off the computer. But uh, as we think this morning, we, we can't turn off the past, can we? Indeed, we have to remember Remember the human cost of violence and war. Remember the suffering. It is, after all, Remembrance Sunday. We can switch off, to some extent, from the things that are happening thousands of miles away and millions of miles in terms of culture. It's much harder to switch off from the battles that are right here. Let me show you something. If you're looking for Christmas gift ideas, this is an excellent book. It was a birthday present from my mother-in-law. Uh, an excellent. This map here, you won't be able to see very much apart from the yellow. The yellow here is uh, the first night of the Blitz, the things that were destroyed in London by the Luftwaffe. Uh, they were mostly aiming for the East End, but one or two bombs went astray. This one here, just there, that's Earlsfield Station, there or thereabouts. If, you, uh, if you're on the way to work tomorrow and you're standing at the station, just look up. No planes in the sky, at least no... Uh, Luftwaffe uh, bombing the station. But imagine what that was like living here uh, those years ago. And my dad tells the story. He lived not very far from here during the Second World War. He was a very small boy at the time. Uh, he went out one day to pick his best friend up for, for school. And his house and everybody in it had been destroyed by a direct hit the night before. Uh, we cannot avoid the reality of war. Many of us haven't lived through war. By the grace of God, we pray that we never will do. But it is everywhere. It's in all our parts. And all the laws, all the UN charters on human rights, they don't stop Abu Ghraib, do they? And they don't stop Islamic State. They don't stop people doing horribly brutal things to each other. And so in our more reflective moments we ask, why doesn't God do something about it? As we ask that question, I don't think we're, we realise quite what it is we're actually asking God to do. And that's why I think this passage in God's kindness, coming up on Remembrance Sunday, is a very great gift to us. What we're going to see this morning is that the problem is not out there, not some kind of mystery disease that affects other people in other countries, but has left us alone. We're going to see that the problem is in the heart of every one of us. We're going to see that Jesus is doing something about it, is, has done something about it, and is going to do something about it. But before we get to that, we need to be clear on the problem, don't we? 
We've all heard it said, and perhaps we've said it ourselves. I'm not a bad person. I've never killed anyone. So God must accept me, right? And the thing is, the longer you're a Christian, the more likely you are to say something like that, at least in your own heart. The more godly you become, the more like Christ you become, the more likely it is that you're going to look at yourself and say, I'm not that bad, actually. And if that's where you're at this morning, if that's where you're in danger of being, can I say you have not understood what is wrong with the world? The problem is far more fundamental and more penetrating to the core of our very nature. And Jesus' point here is pretty simple. Uh, You may never have murdered anyone, you may never do so, but every one of us has been angry. We've used uh, harsh words, and Jesus said that is the same kind, it comes from the same place as murder. It's not not the same point on the scale, but it is the same in kind. Let's jump into the text with me, would you? Verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. What Jesus does here is at one and the same time simple and extraordinary. The simple point, I think, is this. Murder and and anger are kin, they're brother and sister, they they come from the same place, they're of a piece, and so both deserve judgment. The words that you shall not murder are taken uh, verbatim from Exodus 20, 13, we had uh, Fee read it earlier for us, the Ten Commandments. The judgment in view here is, uh, is the civil court, the image here is the judge sitting on the bench with his gavel in his hand, passing down uh, the death sentence on the murderer, that is repeatedly what is uh, the, the uh, consequence of murder. Uh, that's the judgment. And Jesus says, the most loving, the most gentle man in history, says the same penalty ought to be due to every angry person. That's the simple part. And yet it seems outrageous to us, doesn't it? It's outrageous for Jesus to say that. How can anger be as bad as murder? How can it deserve the same punishment? We, we differentiate between crimes because some things are worse than others. And in any case, how would you prove that someone's been angry? Where's the crime? Where's the evidence? And that brings us on to the extraordinary aspect of what Jesus says. Just look again at those verses. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you, Did you just do that, Jesus? Did you just set yourself up in opposition to the the Ten Commandments, to the law of God, and say, but I tell you... Well, no, Jesus is not setting himself up against the law. He is, however, setting himself up here and in this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount against those who interpret the law. That'll become clearer in the next couple of weeks. Back in verse 20, just at last week's passage... Jesus uh, distinguishes his kingdom from uh, the religious leaders, from the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the the scribes. They are the interpreters of the law. They're the ones who hand down the rules and regulations for God's people. And Jesus says their handling of the Bible is false. When we get to the end of chapter 7, the crowd turn around to each other and say, who is this with such authority to teach? 
That is what Jesus is doing. He's asserting here his right to interpret God's word. You've heard them say to you, but I tell you, this is what God's word really means. And so his point is this. Laws from the outside, whether the law of God or or the UN or anybody else, they don't go far enough. Civil laws can address our our murderous actions, uh, but laws from the outside can't change our hearts. Jesus makes this plain in chapter 15 when he's addressing the same group of people on the same subject. He says, you nullify the word of God. These are the religious teachers who are afraid of what God's law says, have have shackled it round with other laws that reduce the bar. They've lowered the bar. And Jesus says, you've missed the point. You've missed the heart of the problem. He says, these things come out of a person's mouth and they come from the heart and they defile the person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. When Jesus raises the bar in Matthew chapter 5 to take in anger, he's pointing to the heart. He's doing what the law always was doing. He's looking past the most egregious sins, murder, to the place where murder comes from. The same place as anger. The human heart. And we've all got one of those. See, the law was always pointing forward to this, but it just never went far enough. Jesus simply takes the law and goes to its logical conclusion. And so here's the rub of what Jesus is saying. A sin in the heart is still sin. Whether you act on it and murder someone, or only think murder. Even if the people around you cannot see your thoughts, or the anger that boils away inside, it is still sin, and you deserve to be punished for it. The irony is, the Pharisees and the scribes had taken the law of God and lowered the standards to make it achievable. And they still failed. Of course, we, if you've been, you were here with us for the Bible overview last year, one of the things that you would have seen over and over and over again ad nauseum was that the people of God failed to keep the law of God. And Jesus is saying that the law was always a low bar. What the law was pointing to was something much greater, much harder. The reason you failed to keep the law is that your hearts are rotten, just like ours are. How would the court convict you of anger, though? Look down again at the passage. I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The crimes here, I think, are equivalents. They're not uh, going up the scale. Rakar and you fall basically mean the same thing. They, they come from the same place as anger. They come from the same place as murder. But notice what Jesus is saying. Some of, those ju- some of those sins will fall under the civil court. That's what the judgment here means. Rakar falls under a different court. It's the church court. It's discipline within the church. There are some sins which don't lead to committing crimes, but do lead you into immorality, and the church must discipline you. And the words you fall, fall under the eternal court. There may be things that we think or say or do that nobody ever sees, where we never receive the discipline of the, ch- of the church or the, the discipline of the court, but we will fall under God's judgment. There is no escaping 
God knows the heart. Every thought, every whispered oath, every cry of frustration, and every one of them falls under judgment. And every one deserves hell. I need to pause here for a moment. I don't enjoy speaking about hell any more than you enjoy hearing it, but it must be done. For Jesus, the most loving man in history, speaks about it here. There are some that want to say Jesus is all fluffy bunnies and sweetness, that the judgmental God thing is so Old Testament. But Jesus speaks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. And it is meant to be a visceral, powerful, scary image. The word hell here is in the original Gehenna, which is a reference to the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. It's a valley just outside Jerusalem. At a time in the past when God's people had turned away from him and worshipped Molech, they'd taken their children out to the valley and burned them in the fire as a human sacrifice. When we hear the word hell on Jesus' lips, we are to hear the screams of burning children. At the time of Jesus, it was the place where the people of Jerusalem took their rubbish out. And there was a permanent fire there. And they threw their rubbish in it. It was stinking, hot, permanent reminder of the judgment. The judgment that we deserve. Let me be crystal clear here. Verse 48, if you look with me, this is the end of this little section of the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Failure to keep that standard is what deserves hell, because God is perfect. He sets a perfect standard. The law pointed to it, and now Jesus makes it explicit. See, the temptation for us is is to think that the problem's out there, isn't it? That murder and violence are a thing that other people do. We're nice, civilised, middle-class British people. We don't do that. And so we demand justice. We see what is happening around the world, perhaps in our own streets, and we think, God, do something about it. And he will. On the final day, he will open the doors to hell and cast every guilty person into it. There will be justice the justice that we innately cry out for. The problem is, though, the problem's not out there. It's in here. And I'm as guilty, and you're as guilty as everybody else. Are you feeling the force of this yet, as Jesus raises the bar? Still not convinced? I wonder what makes you angry. Perhaps it's a harsh word spoken by a friend behind your back that you hear about. Perhaps it's the way that the preacher stands up and lumpenly uses an illustration that cuts a bit too close to home and you feel a little bit offended, and I apologise if that's something I've done. For me, it comes when someone close to me pricks my sense of self-worth. Imagine the scenario. I've said something unkind to one of my children, I've been harsh with them. And then might take me to one side and say, you realise that you shouldn't have done that. The gracious thing, of course, is to accept her gentle, gracious rebuke and say, yes, you're right, and and repent and apologise to my children and be reconciled. But the trouble is, for my sense of self-worth, it's not just a gentle rebuke. It's an assault on my very identity. Because my sense of self-worth is built on what men and other people think of me. And right now what I'm hearing is, 
You're a useless father. You're outrageous. And so I have to correct her. I have to confront her. I have to prove that she's wrong. I have to prove that I'm right. Otherwise, I'm worthless. And so we get into an argument about why I'm right and she's wrong. And so I prove that I'm a useless husband as well as a useless father. Um, I wish I was exaggerating. And by the grace of God, it happens much less than it used to. But the truth is, my temptation is always to turn away from Jesus and my security in him and build my self-worth, my identity, on what other people think of me. Which is a terribly fragile and ephemeral thing. And I can get so angry trying to defend myself against other people's opinions. And the thing is, I know my Bible well enough and I know people well enough to think that I'm not the only one in that boat in this room this morning. And if you're at all like me, you'll be tempted to dodge what Jesus is saying here. To try and defend yourself against what Jesus is saying. To push away his rebuke. To push away his uh, exposing our hearts. And say, Jesus, I'm not like that. I'm a good person. I'm good enough for you. Can I say don't? These are kind and loving words of a saviour who is speaking to his disciples. They warn us against our anger. They warn us that it has raised God's wrath and deserves hell. And they're meant to lead us not to run away from Jesus' words, but to admit our faults and to mourn. Verse 3. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So there's the problem. It's not out there. It's fundamental to who we are as people. And that means the solution that we want, which is justice, and we're right to cry out for it, is downright scary, isn't it? You should be scared, shouldn't you? We've asked Jesus to do something about all the mess in the world, and he will, and that means he's got to deal with us. And if all we had this morning was the knowledge that God will do something, he will bring justice, then we ought to despair. But our passage points in another direction. It encourages us to dwell on Jesus' life and death instead. Just look back at verse 17 with me, would you? Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. The law and the prophets is a shorthand way of saying the whole Old Testament. Everything the Old Testament was was pointing to and speaking about, Jesus has come to fulfil them. What does fulfil mean? I think it means in this context, Jesus came to bring into being everything that the Old Testament was pointing towards. That is, everything in the Old Testament functions as signposts pointing towards what Jesus was going to be and going to do. So we come to our passage in this particular law, Exodus 20.13, which Jesus has fulfilled in one sense by explaining its deeper meaning. He's showing us what the law was always pointing towards but never could achieve. And having given its fullest interpretation, Jesus then does something really radical. Having raised the bar, he then jumps over it. He keeps God's word perfectly. Under the strongest possible provocation, you think about Jesus on the last day before he died. Betrayed, slandered, beaten, accused falsely. 
Never a misspoken word, never unrighteous anger, never a word out of place, never anything less than loving, compassionate and kind. I think there's a danger that we miss this when we read through the Gospels. It's so easy for us to look at Jesus interacting with other people to find out what his teaching point is. Jesus has, has argued this from that angle so we can learn a new thing about how Jesus sees the world, which is good and right and proper, and we must do that. But if we never notice how Jesus interacts with people, if we never see with whom he's interacting, we miss something truly profound, which is Jesus, the one who perfectly obeys the deepest sense of the law. But there's even more, isn't there? See, it's not simply that Jesus came to set a really high bar and then do the, do the unachievable thing. He actually does it to prove to us that it is possible, even though we've fallen so far short of it. Rather, Jesus comes to do it in our place. Jesus has repeatedly said in this section, hasn't he, yours is the kingdom of heaven. He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to the people who are on the inside who deserve hell. Yours is the kingdom of heaven, you hell-bound people. How on earth does that work? And the simple answer is grace. God's free, undeserved gift. If you've been around church any length of time, you'll have heard us say that Jesus died for our sins. He took our place. When he died on the cross, the sin of my anger was laid on Jesus and paid for. And that's true. But he also lived the life that I should have lived. He came and jumped the bar for me. He did everything that the law demands. And then he gives that righteous life to me. It's a swap, you see. It's not simply my sin on him. It's his perfectly righteous, never angry life given to me and to you. Even as Jesus sets the bar ridiculously high and then jumps over it like some sort of superhuman Uh, athlete at the Olympics he's carrying us with him in his heart it's us he's doing it for and so as he does every good and perfect thing we're doing it with him they're our deeds his perfect life belongs to us if we're Christians here today if we felt the depth of our sin this morning and I hope we have it could leave us with despair but it shouldn't Instead, it should magnify to us the glory and greatness of Jesus. Great because he did what we cannot do. Great because he is what we would love to be but cannot be in ourselves. Perfect. Fully obedient to God. But great too because he chose to do that for us. Sinners. People who hated him. While we were still sinners, he died for us. And he lived for us. He didn't simply come to prove that he's perfect to God. God knew that already. He came to make us perfect in his sight too. And it should stagger us. It should blow our minds that God can look at us through the lens of Christ and see perfection. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, then let me say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Isn't that great? The hell that we deserve was born by Jesus and the, the eternal life that he deserves is ours by, by that exchange. And again, if we stop there, we've got much to praise God for, haven't we? 
But I think we'd still miss the most fundamental aspect of this passage. After all, Jesus is actually commanding the church to be perfect as his Father is perfect. He's not simply doing that so that he sets a bar too high for us to jump. He's actually telling us to do it. He's calling us to a radical transformation. Life in the kingdom is meant to be a perfect life. That's what he's saying. Kingdom people are perfect people. Of course, that will only be true in our natural, in ourselves, when Jesus comes back and we, we see him and are transformed to be like him. But even now, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to be Christians in the world, isn't he? And the point there, therefore, seems to me to be this. Drawing near to Jesus makes us better people. Not in the first place, better than other people. Better than we used to be. Uh, better than we were. But I'm going, to say, I'm going to say something quite outrageous. I'm going to say it carefully, as carefully as I can. I think Jesus does expect Christians to be better people than everybody else. Not smug. Uh, we're always, in the first place, mourning our sin, verse 4. That's the, that's the place we never get away from as Christians. But Jesus doesn't stop at mourning, does he? He moves to hungering and thirsting for righteousness, verse 6. See, Christians who love Christ, who see beauty in him, who want to be like him, are being transformed on the inside. Laws on the outside can't change our hearts, but the love for Christ can. And that in turn leads, verse 9, to being peacemakers, for example. Not angry, not at war, but being peacemakers. And we must go further, mustn't we? Verses 13 through 16. We were taught to be salty, lighty people. To be a city on a hill. To be a community that is radically different, and I would say radically better than the world around us. The world is in darkness. Ignorant of God, ignorant of how to live for him. But Jesus has come as the light and he causes the church to shine. Now you might think I've become arrogant at this point. I really hope not. Christians should be the most humble people because we know that there's no good in us except what God has put there by his grace. We're the most aware of our sin, the most exposed. We come to church and we hear sermons like this which tell us how rotten we are on the inside. We should be the most humble people. But we also expect the gospel to transform us. How does that happen? I think the idea in this passage is that you draw near to Jesus that's what the disciples do in chapter 4. And it's an idea that runs right through the New Testament. Let me give you a couple of references if you want to jot them down and look at them later. End of Colossians 2, Paul says, the law can't make you godly. It's unable to change the heart. But he then says, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, set your heart and mind on Jesus and on the eternal life where he is. And then he lists out a whole bunch of areas in where you can be godly now. The law can't change you, but fixing your heart and mind on Christ can change you. At, Coloss at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says, Dwelling on the glory of Jesus, fixing your eyes on him day by day, will transform you daily from one degree of glory to another. Captivated by the glory of Christ, you become more glorious, you become more like him. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 where we're told that our final perfection happens like this. Jesus comes on the clouds, 
in all his radiant resurrection splendour, and we see him as he is for the first time. All, all our seeing through the scriptures now is as through a glass darkly. We don't see him as fully and completely as we will do. But the day we see him as he really is, we will be transformed like that. In a moment, in an instant, we will become perfect, never more again to sin. It is seeing Jesus, it is drawing near to Jesus, fixing our eyes on him in the scriptures as we listen to the Sunday sermon, as we gather for small groups in the middle of the week, as we read our Bibles day by day. It is drawing close to Jesus and keeping our eyes on him that transforms us from one degree of glory to another day by day, changes us to be like Christ. Isn't that what the Beatitudes were teaching us a few weeks ago? We begin by despairing over ourselves, recognising our poverty of spirit, recognising that we've done wrong, mourning over it, moves through a change of heart because we hunger and thirst for righteousness to be like Jesus, moves to mercy, moves to purity of heart, moves to peacemaking. Anger doesn't belong in the kingdom, peacemaking belongs in the kingdom. We cry out to God, do something about it. He will do something about it. He will judge every fault. He has done something about it because Jesus has taken the punishment we deserve that we don't need to face it. Hell is not our destination. And he is doing something about it today. If you want to see what God is doing in the world to solve the problem of war and violence, you look at the church. As God takes people from every tribe and tongue, warring factions across the world and unites them together under Christ. As people put down their weapons of war, as they embrace each other as brothers and sisters, that is what God is doing. You want to see peace in Syria? Then pray for the going out of the gospel. Pray for the Islamic State militants to become Christians. That is how you will get peace. Judgment is coming. There will be justice. And in the meantime, Jesus is building the church. And I take it, that sense of that is what God wants for us in the church is what's going on in verses 23 through 26. Let me briefly give you 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and remember that your brother or sister, that is your Christian brother or sister, has something against you, leave your gift there in front of them, in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. This is the point in the passage where Jesus gives us imperatives. He says, given what I've said to you about, about anger, and, and violence, and war, and peacemaking... Uh, don't be angry, be peacemakers, be reconcilers. And the image here is a very strong one. Where Jesus is speaking to, to his disciples here is, is 80 miles away from Jerusalem, the only altar around. And so the journey to the, to the temple to offer your sacrifice was a week's round journey. It's a lot of time off work, away from your family, away from uh, everything. But you make the journey because you're really serious about God. And you get to the, the altar and you realise that you're, you've fallen out with somebody else in, in the church. And Jesus says you can't offer your sacrifice to God when you're disunited in the church. That's why we're so serious about the Lord's Supper when we gather together. Remembering Jesus' sacrifice requires us to be united to each other. And so Jesus says, leave your sacrifice there and go back home 80 miles, find, that, find your brother or sister, make it your absolute priority to be reconciled to them, and then come the 80 miles back, and then offer your sacrifice, because at that point, your gift is acceptable to God. And so I wonder, how many of us here have anger issues? 
have uh, unhealed hostilities amongst us. A harsh word said by a friend that we've never forgiven them for, that, that seals, seal, seeps away into our hearts and, and makes us bitter and angry. How many of us have uh, never uh, apologised to our children for being angry with them? How many of us have never uh, been reconciled properly to our housemates or our loved ones? Have never seen anger for what it is and have let it eat away at our relationships and left us disunited? Well, verses 23-26 are about uh, making reconciliation an absolute priority inside the church. And I take it verses 25-26 outside the church as you seek to be uh, reconciled to people who have things against you outside the church. Jesus has set a standard very, very high. He said it in words here and he said it in his life as he perfectly uh, satisfies the word of God. He is the light that has come into the world and he calls us to be little lights, little candles flickering in the darkness, gathered together as a city on a hill, a big light. Of course it's a standard we cannot achieve. Of course it's a standard we we seek to achieve only by uh, trusting in Jesus' death for us and his perfect life as our gift. But Jesus is calling us to humble ourselves, to recognise this sin in our own lives, to repent of it, to cut it out, to draw near to him and love the things he loves and hate the things he hates, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then he calls on us to be reconciled to each other. I guess we've probably all got a little bit of reconciling to do in the next uh, little while. And Jesus' words are urgent, aren't they? Leave your gift and go. Know that as you draw near to him, your love for idols will will dissipate. Your grasp on this world will loosen and your grasp on Christ and the next world will uh, grow stronger. And you will long for righteousness. If you are struggling with anger, as I have done and continue to do, it is drawing close to Christ that will heal that and then have the humility to be reconciled and I can promise you with the authority of scripture that you will be a greater person tomorrow than you are today you will grow in godliness to his glory you will be the salt and lighty people that will cause those outside the church to praise him and that too is something to praise him for Should we pray? Our loving Lord Jesus, how we praise you for showing us the the depravity of the human heart. How we praise you for convicting us of our sin, which is a great blessing to us. Thank you too for satisfying uh, the Father's uh, demands of a life perfectly lived. Thank you too for dying a death for all that we have done that we might live the life that you deserve. It is a gift that we cannot begin to understand, but we can praise you for it. And we delight that you are building your church throughout the world, that you are healing conflicts, you are bringing people together who, humanly speaking, have nothing to do with each other. And even here, where sometimes tensions run high in our relationships, we pray for your your healing hand that you would cause us to desire peace and not anger that you would cause us to be reconciled to one another 
that you might make us as united uh, to one another as we should be. And we pray it for your glory.